VegCast. 52 pick. VegCast. Now I can finally say I'm playing with a full deck. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, VegCast is back again for our fifth. The second full menu of vegetarian podcastry, and this time out, we are going to be talking about water, or at least hearing about it, from Farmer Brown, Harold Brown, whom you may know from the movie Peaceable Kingdom, if you have seen that, or if not, you may have seen him around at uh, various vegetarian events. Uh, He is quite the authority and speaks about water usage, uh, the coming crisis, and how that uh, ties in with vegetarianism as well as other social movements and social concerns. So we'll have some excerpts from his talk that he did sponsored by Club Veg right here in Philadelphia. We will also hear a new song, new to us anyway, from Christina Louise Dicker. You may recall her from VegCast 45, where we played a song about rats. This is a little bit more up-tempo number from her this time out. And as always, we have a science fact. This time, it's about the fountain of youth. So that, you would think, would certainly be worth hearing about. I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with veganism. So if that's not too much of a spoiler, then please... Sit back, relax, and crank up your iPod as we deliver to your ears this edition of VegCast. Okay, let's get right into the Harold Brown talk. This was a talk, as I said, that he gave at a venue here in Philadelphia, sponsored by our local folks, Club Veg, who make all kinds of interesting things happen, and we don't get enough chance to tout them. So be sure to check them out on the web at clubveg.org. We'll have them in the show notes, too, of course. But uh, Harold Brown was here. I basically recorded portions of his talk, so this is a little different format. We're not sitting for an interview, although you will hear that I did uh, ask one of the questions. And uh, Harold Brown did start off explaining that in the Western world, and especially in rich countries like the United States, we may not be aware of how bad the problem is getting worldwide. Let's have a listen. The global water crisis has become a a most powerful symbol of the growing inequality in our world. While the wealthy enjoy bottled water, Millions of poor have only contaminated water from local rivers and wells. Two-fifths of the world's population lack access to proper sanitation, which has led to massive outbreaks of waterborne diseases. Half of the world's hospital beds are occupied by people with an easily preventable waterborne disease. And the World Health Organization reports that contaminated water is implicated in 80% of all sicknesses and diseases worldwide. In the last 10 years, the number of children killed by diarrhea exceeded the number of people killed in all armed conflicts since the Second World War. Harold went on to give us specific examples of water crises or crises in the making that we may or may not have heard about. Water shortages or crises are usually not reported in the news in developed countries, unless it is within their own borders. Australia is the driest continent on Earth and is facing a severe shortage of water in all of its major cities, as well as widespread drought in the countryside. 
Last year we heard of the problems in Atlanta, Georgia. You guys remember that? They ran out of water? Experts estimate that California has a 20-year supply left. New Mexico, a 10-year supply. Arizona is out. It imports all of its drinking water. Florida depends on its groundwater for fresh water. But with a population that is growing by 1,060 people every day, it will soon be in trouble. Of course, we might lose a few of those people with these tropical storms. Uh, much of its water is used for lawns and golf courses, and at the rate they are pumping groundwater, thousands of sinkholes have swallowed up everything from cars to shopping malls. Harold talked about how small conveniences and inconveniences in terms of water use for city dwellers may have large impacts on the rural community and the developing world. In 2006, the number of city dwellers surpassed the number of rural dwellers for the first time in history. In the third world, or developing world, this is causing massive urban slums without sanitation or fresh water. This is causing what has come to be termed water apartheid. Much of this migration from farms to cities can be traced to trade agreements and a resurgence in the Green Revolution, and hence what I call agricultural apartheid. If you check my website, I talk about this in a little more detail. I call, I've come up with the term um, GAD, or Global Agricultural Domination, which is the Green Revolution, but it's gone way beyond what the Green Revolution envisioned. Many of these farmers are leaving their land because there is no more water. For example, in India, agricultures have come in and spread the good word of chemical agriculture. The Green Revolution, if you don't know what that is, came out of the Second World War. It's chemical agriculture, chemical fertilizers, uh, herbicides, pesticides, and so on. Uh, along with it came the corporate model of get bigger, get out. That was the mantra of the Green Revolution because it was also the consolidation of agriculture. Right now, three corporations in the United States control 80% of our food. In India, Coke has built plants to bottle their famous cola along with bottling water. Within a few years, they have pumped the aquifer dry, leaving village wells along with the water from the same aquifer used to irrigate crops and water farm animals gone. As the small farmer runs out of water and gets squeezed by agribusiness in other ways, in protest, they fill a glass with pesticide, walk out in the field, drink it, and commit suicide in protest to the inaction of their government and the unprecedented power of the corporations which they feel they are powerless against. Since 1997 to this year, or last year, to 2007, the estimated number of farmers in India that have committed suicide is about 15,000. And we don't hear about that in the media in the United States. No, it's filtered. But if you, go, if you go to the BBC, not BBC World, because that's filtered news for America, but you go to the BBC UK website, and in their search bar put in suicide belt. You're going to learn and see videos, news coverage. It will really disturb you. Harold then moved into the so-called meat of the issue for vegetarians, but uh, explained some things about livestock and water uh, that some of us may not have been thoroughly aware of. Like most natural resources, there is a huge gap between first and third world in water usage. 
The average human needs about 13 gallons of water a day for drinking, cooking, and sanitation. The average North American uses almost 159 gallons a day. The average African uses 1.6 gallons a day. Now, I'm licensed in the state of New York as a municipal water operator. That's a really weird story how that happened, but I am. Now, when we do new constructions up there for like apartment buildings, like a building like this, you want the calculus for how the water usage for an apartment building is 100 gallons per person per unit. So it's actually below actual usage, but that's the mean we use. Pollution is one of the greatest threats we face. Sanitation is available in only those areas that have the financial resources. Uh, but water treatment cannot take out much of what we put in. The most common method of water treatment is chlorination. It works well to kill pathogens, but it doesn't remove chemicals, heavy metals, pharmaceuticals, and so on. If a sparsely populated rural area has its aquifer contaminated, even by something that chlorination could remove a threat of, it is deemed impractical to build the treatment plant. I have seen such a case in New York where a mega dairy has contaminated the local aquifer with E. coli to the point where it, to the point where it's lethal to drink the water. It has killed one person already, and all the wells have been sealed because this dairy has contaminated a huge area north of Ithaca. This doesn't begin to make sense when you consider that farm animals generate 130 times more waste per day than humans do. Of course, farm animal urine and manure are considered fertilizer or more commonly known in the industry as nutrients. Manure isn't necessarily for soil fertility. Well, manure isn't necessary for soil fertility, period. I don't care what people in permaculture say. I don't care what people in organic agriculture say. It's not necessary. To say that it is, is only a concession that farm animals are four-legged and two-legged compost bins. Because all they're doing is taking the plant material in, digesting it, composting it quicker than you could in a compost pile, theoretically. It's not true either. But there's a host of other problems that come from agricultural use of animal waste. Manure also contains heavy metals, drugs, and pathogens that have been shown to be taken up by the plants we eat. A common pollution problem is phosphorus loading in water, of waterways, which depletes oxygen in the water and makes it hard or impossible for water-dwelling animals to survive. Beyond this is the air pollution created by the storage and spreading of the water. In other countries, it is even worse. In Pakistan, less than 25% of the population has access to clean water. Almost 65% of Bangladesh's water, groundwater is contaminated. The uh, Yamuna River that runs through New Delhi is clinically dead. 75% of Russia's surface water and 30% of its groundwater is highly polluted. In 2007, a state of emergency was declared in northern and central Italy when the Pole River dried up. The Pole River Valley grows a third of the country's food. 40% of U.S. rivers and streams are too dangerous for fishing, swimming, or drinking, as are 46% of the lakes due to industrial farms. Agricultural use, agriculture uses over 1 billion pounds of industrial weed killer every year. This has given rise to the dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and the Chesapeake Bay. 
Canada dumps more than one trillion liters of untreated sewage into waterways each year. We have an EPA, they don't have anything up there. Because they see their population is so small for the landmass they've got, they see it as just this vast, pristine wilderness that they could never screw up. But they are. And we're downstream of it, especially in the Great Lakes area. One third of Africa's population does not have access to safe drinking water. Lake Victoria, the source of the Nile, is being used as an open sewer. A stopgap measure that is being used is to use sewage water to irrigate crops. Lettuce, tomatoes, mangoes, and coconuts are being watered with sewage straight from these megacities. You may recall the contaminated lettuce and spinach last year. It was contaminated by polluted groundwater that was used to irrigate, irrigate crops. The source of the pollution, which took them almost a year to admit where it came from, and those of us that know about agriculture knew the day it happened where it came from. The source of the pollution was near uh, was nearby in feedlots and dairy operations in the Central Valley. See, the E. coli that kills people is only found one place in nature. Only one place. Hmm? No, it's not in all poop. It is in poop. And not all poop. It has to be the poop of a ruminant animal on a grain diet. See, cows, ruminant animals were never ever, they're pure herbivores, and they were never ever meant to eat grain. Grain is poison for them. And when you introduce grain into their diet, which we do in dairies and feedlots, then it creates the fermentation process in their gut, creates the E. coli that kills us. It's the only place it's found. But it's found in humans, too, because we eat grains and we're not suited for eating grains either. Uh, just as a side, in, when I was growing up, I'm old, okay? It used to be we had to eat liver once a week, get our iron. Liver and onions, I had it once a week. You go to a grocery store now, and I, I challenge you to find liver in the meat department. You won't find it. In my area in rural New York, in Redneck Rural New York, I, there, none of our grocery stores carry it. Walmart doesn't carry it. PNC doesn't carry it. Tops doesn't carry it. Wegmans doesn't carry it. Why? It's because all of our beef comes off feedlots. What happens when you give animals grain is, especially corn and wheat, and oats, is that it causes liver cancer. They get tumors in the liver. And now because of the intensive feeding programs we have, these high energy feeding programs we have, they, when they slaughter these animals, the liver is so shot that there's no way you could slice it to get a piece that looks healthy that people would buy. That's why they don't push liver anymore on the market for people who do eat meat. Harold then moved into what governments and corporations are now doing to try to mitigate the water crisis and how some of these methods put them at odds with people like you and me. Governments, water companies, and food companies have been holding world summits on water since 2000. These summits are sponsored by the likes of Coca-Cola, McDonald's, De Beers, the Diamond People, and BMW. The main players in the global privatization of water are Suez, Veolia, and RWE Thames. But these corporations need partnerships with global policy makers. One example is the World Bank, 
who developed the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. The WBCSD is a lobby network of 180 corporations as well as 50 national and regional business councils and has become a key player in the water policy of the WTO. The efforts for privatization have been very profitable for the corporations but a disaster for communities. In nearly every case, when the water systems are privatized, costs to consumers go up while quality and services go down. These agreements have been forced on the global south. The way this works is that loans are granted on the condition that water will be privatized. If they refuse to give up their right to water, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and others withhold money until they acquiesce. Sometimes there is blowback. Bolivia privatizes water under the supervision of the World Bank in 1998. In a country where the minimum wage is less than $60 a month, water bills were coming to households for $20 a month. Citizens came together and formed the Coalition in Defense of Water and Life. Bechtel hold, held the contract, and on April 10th of 2000, the Bolivian government backed down and told Bechtel to leave. Some believe that technology will save the day, and the biggest star that everyone is hitching their wagon to is desalination. Desalination creates more problems than it solves. There are about 12,300 desalination plants in 155 countries, but they are expensive to run and tend to be used for highly localized, high-valued, and industrialized needs. In other words, if you don't have money, you don't drink their water. Only in the Middle East and the Caribbean is desalination an integral part of a country's water solution. 2,000 of these plants are in Saudi Arabia. They can afford to build them and run them because they take a lot of energy. Right now, the plants that they're looking at building in California all have to be near nuclear power plants because their energy use is huge to run these plants. Uh, just a brief description of what desalination is. You know what reverse osmosis systems are that you put like under your sink or sometimes your countertop to run your tap water through to take all the bad stuff out? Well, these are about the size that would be like three stories high in the size of this building. And they use a lot of energy to run all of that salt water through those membranes. The health and the environmental hazards come from the lethal byproduct, a poisonous combination of concentrated brine mixed with chemicals and heavy metals used in the production of fresh water to prevent salt erosion and to clean and maintain the reverse osmosis membranes. For every gallon of desalted water, a gallon of poison is pumped back into the sea. Aerial photos of, this, of the Saudi Arabian plants show massive black brine slicks fanning out into the ocean. Uh, you can find these on National Geographic's website. This, uh, NASA has been watching these for years. This discharge also contains the decomposed remains of aquatic life that are killed during the intake process. These remains reduce the oxygen content of the water, causing further stress on marine life. Researcher John Archer writes, quote, desalinization of the sea is not the answer to our water problems. It is a survival technology, a life support system, an admission of the extent of our failure, end quote. The conflict over water has already begun. Every year in California, there are court battles over irrigation water and that pits alfalfa farmers against the mega dairies in the Central Valley. 
Canada is very concerned about large-scale water exports to the U.S. Water is a tradable good under NAFTA. It's one of the worst things NAFTA did other than many other bad things it did. It made water tradable, which means that once commercial exports start, it will be very difficult to turn the tap off. Water is also an, an investment, which means that American water corporations or the U.S. Subsidi uh, subsidiaries of the big French corporations, water corporations, could sue the Canadian government for damages. In the U.S., many attempts to privatize have been turned back thanks to strong local groups, many who have come together to farm uh, the national network called, or to form the national network called Water Allies, you can find them on the internet, which is overseen by Food and Water Watch. A large listserv called Water Warriors helps with national and international campaigns and uh, keeps everybody connected. Places that have learned the hard lessons of water privatization in the U.S. are Atlanta, who broke their contract with United Water, New Orleans dropped Suez and Veolia, Laredo, Texas terminated its contract with United Water, Stockton, California ended its contract with RWE Thames, and Felton, California raised its own taxes in order to buy back their water from RWE Thames. The rebellion is going on in Europe as well. So what are the actual mechanics of this rebellion, or what can the average person do about this crusade to privatize water and uh, to take that out of our hands? That's the question, more or less, that I tried to put to Harold. Harold, let me ask, in the large scale, um, we have the slowly dawning consciousness, I think, on the average person that, oh, there seems to be something going wrong on the planet and maybe there are things that I do that may contribute to that and maybe I could look at that at some point and change that um, and on the very local scale here in Philadelphia we have a mayor that's saying he's going to make this the greenest country in America and he's, he's appointed somebody his sustainability director um, my question is I mean you're, you're good at laying out for us all the problems, what, how can we tap into that, uh, that burgeoning consciousness either on the large scale or on the scale of getting government involved in actually doing something, you know, getting these facts, internalizing them, and then turning them into some kind of legislation or regulation? That's very good, thanks. The, the one thing about local government that is different from um, even state or federal government is, it's like uh, zoning ordinances. If any county zoning ordinance basically says, you know, these are your ordinances. So if I want to, say, build a shed, and there's nothing about that in the ordinances, I can build the shed however I want. But if my neighbor complains about it, he says, well, I don't like the way he built his shed, well, the county, the commissioners will say, well, we don't have any ordinance against so he can do it however he wants. And if they push it, they'll say, well, we, then we need to have an ordinance saying that you've got to have a concrete floor and whatever, you know. And we want standards for this thing. Like where I live, you can build a house. You don't have to have, you don't have, to have a, uh, a licensed electrician or plumber or anything do the stuff in your house when you build it because we just don't have ordinances for it. 
that's what you need to do with like water, air, soil. These are the three big things in cities that what you do is you go to your county people and you say, it's kind of a preemptive thing. You say, what we need is to have ordinances to keep these things from happening, like to keep our water system from being privatized. Have an ordinance written so if the big boys ever come in, like RWE Towns or Suez, and they come in and say, hey, you know, well, they'll wine and dine these people. Make no mistake. And they'll spread cash all over the place and trips and everything else to get them to privatize your water. But if you say, no, we got something on the books. We saw you coming. You're protected. What stops that from simply going and applying the same people to change the law? Well, that's where the public has to be vigilant. That's why I said vigilance is our job. We have to quit being consumers and be citizens. And seeing, you know, educating ourselves, educating our friends. I'm a true believer in the six degrees of separation. You go, you get information, then you educate yourself about it, and you share it. And as you share it, it keeps going out. It keeps radiating out. And that's how you build community. That's how you build a grassroots movement. We've seen those boys having too much fun. Kind of like the way they get the job done. Hot rock, cool blues. Well, these little gals can do it too. When chicks in June, kids with class. Mamas make the music and we play it hard and fast. Christina Louise Dicker from Australia with Get Up and Go, the title track from her new seven-song EP. You can find that on her MySpace page, which we will, of course, link to in the show notes. When Harold talked about Australia, I remembered Christina and thought we would uh, play that as kind of a tie-in. But now it's time to tie in the science. 
Our science fact for this VegCast is Study Finds Fountain of Youth, Vegan Diet and Exercise. Uh, This is a report on a study in the journal Lancet Oncology, uh, written up for the site dbtechno.com. There were various uh, write-ups in various media outlets, but I chose this one because I love that headline. Study Finds Fountain of Youth vegan diet and exercise, and I think that may be a little bit overblown, but it's entertaining uh, all the same. And there is a kernel of truth. Uh, The story says that the fountain of youth apparently lies in following a lifestyle that includes exercise and a vegan diet. A major lifestyle change may be needed if you truly want to find the fountain of youth for yourself. He goes on to explain this is a study from the University of California, San Francisco, studying 24 men with prostate cancer. The men all had to follow some major lifestyle changes for the study. Their lifestyle they had to follow included 30 minutes of exercise six days a week, as well as an hour of meditation or relaxing every day. And, of course, they had to consume a diet that was made up of whole foods, fruit, and vegetables. The study found that this was able to increase an enzyme known as telomerase, which protects cells from the effects of aging. A reduction in telomerase has been linked to an increased risk of disease and premature death. By following this lifestyle, those in the study increased their telomerase levels by 29%. So it's a small study, and it's a small uh, thing, that uh, a uh, cell action, something happening on a very small level, but it uh, may have big implications. And the uh, takeaway from this, of course, is that whether or not the vegan diet alone may be able to reverse the aging process, that seems a little bit dubious. It is, as they say, part of this balanced breakfast. It's part of a lifestyle that can actually increase health, uh, whereas I have to point out we're still waiting for that study on uh, meat or milk uh, taken by themselves and studied by themselves to find any association with those food products themselves that actually increase uh, a person's lifespan. So for now, I would say we're going to err on the side of recommending veganism uh, for those people who want to find the fountain of youth and for those who want to find out the latest scientific news having to do with vegetarianism and veganism, just check back here at the Science Fact. All right, we got to get out of here, but this is coming out on the last day of September, which means that tomorrow, which is when uh, many of the subscribers will probably wake up to find this VegCast on their iPods or whatever, uh, is World Vegetarian Day kicking off Vegetarian Awareness Month. So if you weren't aware of that, then it, this is, would be the month to become aware of it. Uh, and you can find out more about that at worldvegetarianday.org. Okay, and that does wrap up VegCast 52. My thanks to Harold Brown for uh, letting me replay portions of his talk. Thanks, of course, to Club Veg for organizing that. And remember, you can find out more Delaware Valley events on their website. 
Uh, thanks to Christina Louise Dicker for letting us play Get Up and Go. And uh, stick around in October. We've got some interesting stuff coming up for you on a Halloween theme. But until then, please get out there and live like you mean it. Veg-cast.